All right, good morning. Our uh, text this morning is going to be from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Galatians 3, 23 through 29, as we kind of continue our uh, march through Galatians. What I'll do is I'll go ahead and read our, uh, our passage, and then we'll get into a prayer and then hit, hit the ground running. Galatians 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you now and we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word and we ask your blessings upon it as, as we uh, dig into this passage and we ask that you would teach us what we are to know from it, that you would change us by it, that you would transform us by our time together in your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, which guides us through it. And we thank you for the fact that Christ is your son and he is our way of salvation. And we thank you, Lord, that that comes through so clearly in this passage. And we ask your blessings upon our time today, today as we uh, study this scripture and as we go into worship later. Please bless it and may it be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we really hit the ground running, I want to encourage you once again to remember uh, Bob Palacio's challenge to all of us when it comes to Galatians. If you can, take some time each week, just once a week, and sit down and read through Galatians in its entirety. It only takes about 20 minutes, and it'll definitely help us just become very uh, familiar with the passage, with the book, and with its, uh, with its overall theme. And then we can. Uh, it'll also bless our discussion and um, that sort of thing. So, I want to encourage you to do that. I'd also like to give a very brief review of what we've looked at in Galatians so far before we get to the passage in Galatians chapter 3. I want to make it as brief a summary as possible of the three chapters that we've gotten through so far, but I want to do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we've gone through this and it feels fast, and yet it feels like we've also really been, uh, been able to dig deeply into it. But the passage that we have today really relies upon the overall context of the entire epistle. So I want to go through and see what we've actually seen so far. And, um, and I don't need to dig too deeply into it. I want to do it briefly because we've had some really excellent teaching. But let's do that real quick in order to lay the groundwork for our passage here in chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. You'll remember that this book starts out in Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5, by giving a rather odd greeting by Pauline standards. Uh, there's no commendation to the churches in Galatia like there is in many of his other books. But there is a focus upon Paul's apostleship and upon the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. And these are two of the themes which actually fight the Judaizing teaching about which Paul is actually writing the epistle. 
And then Paul unloads both barrels of his bold and bodacious blunderbuss by telling the Galatians that they had a fallen, they had fallen prey to heretical teaching. He does that in uh, Galatians chapter one, verses six through ten. And he tells them the, that the gospel that they had heard from the Judaizers was not really a gospel at all. It was man-made. It was not from God. And then he goes on in chapter uh, one, verses eleven through twenty-four. He tells of his apostleship, his call to apostleship. And he takes great pains to show that it came directly from God. Remember, he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, not to become one. He points that out. And, uh, and then he also says that he never sought the approval of the, apost- the other apostles in order to, uh, to take on this mantle, but rather he went right to work, telling of the gospel to those around him because it came straight from Christ. He then picks up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, by stating that there has been a lot of hypocrisy among the Jews in regard to the Gentile believers. And he even points out in, uh, in uh, 11 through 14 that Peter had fallen into this hypocrisy. But in each of those cases, Paul actually com- has confronted those people in order to establish unity within the body of Christ, unity between Jew and Gentile, and to kind of get rid of this hypocrisy. This confrontation that he talks about in Galatians 2, 11 through 14 with Peter, he then follows that up in verses 15 through 21 with a great statement on the fact that a man is not justified by works of the law, right? He's not justified by works of the law. No man can be justified by the works of the law. And instead, people can only be justified by Christ. So then Paul gives this wonderful statement in uh, chapter 2 and verse 20, and it's one that we're well familiar with, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? From there, Paul launches into calling the Galatians foolish for assuming that that which they had received by hearing with faith, that's chapter 3, verse 2, could be perfected by the flesh in keeping the law. After all, Paul argues in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, even Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? And that was pre-law. It was even pre-circumcision, right? So that what we have is we are all saved in the same way by faith in Christ Jesus, and it's counted to us as righteousness. A couple of weeks ago then, we looked in uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, at how the law brings with it a curse. And then last week, we saw how the promise of God to Abraham has not changed nor is it made through the law, but rather through Christ, so that the law's purpose was to shut up everyone under sin. That's, uh, that's actually in 3.22 and then also in our passage today. Shut up under sin until the promise was revealed by faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our passage again. So let's reread it, but let's start in uh, verse 22 instead. Verse 22 of chapter 3. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
And what we see in this passage is actually two separate metaphors, and I want to get deeply into these in a minute, but we see two separate metaphors for our interaction with the law. These two metaphors help us to see clearly or more clearly how God actually used the law for his purpose, as well as how people interact and interacted with the law. Now, this gets us to one thing that we have not really talked that much about so far as we've gone through Galatians, that yes, we can read, um, there's a sense in which we can and should read the book from the perspective of the Galatians who are receiving it, um, basically as a correction of the doctrinal deviation that they had taken from the gospel. But there's also a route of looking at this epistle from the perspective of the one who wrote it, from Paul as he is correcting these things. And I think it's the latter way that is actually a better way to to see it. And what we see from that lens is that um, we actually see, I think, a greater view of the overall redemptive history and the redemptive purposes of God through history. That's what we get, especially when we look at these two metaphors that we're going to look at in a moment. Because we actually see throughout time that God's purpose and plans have not changed. From the very beginning, or actually before the beginning, all the way to today, and they will not change in the future because God is immutable. He doesn't change. Why would his plan change, right? Okay, so he will never deviate from his plan. He has not deviated from it. He will not deviate from it because he is God. And this lens is what we look at, or what we use when we look at, uh, at something like Genesis 3, for instance. Okay, the fall of man. What, what does God do immediately after? Yes, he curses man, woman, and, and the serpent. But he also gives a promise there that we all know very well. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15, when he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between her, your seed, the serpent, and the woman's seed, The woman's seed shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And what what we take that as is the proto-evangelium, the the very first gospel message. And then we see how, yes, indeed, Christ came and bruised the head of the serpent, the one who had guided us into sin, the one who had actually brought about this thing. And we see that God's promises are carried out. We see the promise right after that as well because Adam and Eve, become, uh, becoming aware through their sin of their own nakedness, try to sew together fig leaves to cover themselves and it's in, um, it, it's, it doesn't work right. It's not, it's not good enough. But God helps take care of that. How? By killing an animal and giving them the animal's skins. And so we see this clothing of God, this act of grace right after this curse in which he gives them clothing to wear. And oh, by the way, that's carried out, uh, that's, that's shown again in Zechariah when we see Joshua the high priest before the throne room of God and he is being accused because of his dirty garments and then he's given clean garments. And guess what? Christ does the same thing. We get his garments to wear in place of our own dirty garments, right? So we see then that prior to Christ and the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church, even prior to the Mosaic law, like Moses and the coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land with Moses and Joshua, and even before Cain, Abel, and Seth are born, we see these aspects of the gospel shining forth 
from Genesis 3 with just Adam and Eve. And since we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, guess what? That means that God's plan from before the beginning all the way till now and all the way in the future, which will always be and will never be deviated from, is a universal plan. And so what we end up seeing is how God's plan for redemptive history takes place. And guess what we also see in that? We also see some metaphors there, right? Of um, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, of the, the um, clothing of the sinful man with uh, clothes that he does not deserve. So, why do I labor this point? Well, keep in mind Paul's ultimate purpose for the letter to the Galatians. He summarizes it well in chapter 3, verse 11, by saying, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. So in other words, in these two metaphors that we're about to look at, we have a broad unveiling of a huge cross-section of the redemptive plan of God for humanity. And we see that it actually reaches back beyond the Mosaic law, and it's really silly to want to stay um, under the Mosaic law when that was just a period of time within the redemptive plan of God. This redemptive plan, which was from before creation all the way until he comes back and establishes his kingdom. So what are these two metaphors? Well, let's look at them. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. So here's the first metaphor that we come across, and it's a continuation of verse 22, and that's why we read that before, when he says that the Scripture has shut us up under sin. What, what Scripture did he have? He had the Old Testament, right? The old law. Okay, so he's, he's repeating himself a little bit here as he goes from 22 to 23. And what is this metaphor? This metaphor for the law is prison. It's prison. We were kept in custody, he says in verse 23. We were shut up under the law, as he says in verse 23. This custody in which we were shut up was under the law and under sin in verse 22. So when were we sprung from this prison? When the faith is revealed later in history. You see that in verse 23. The faith which was later to be revealed. So think about this life in this prison for a moment, okay? You know that the law comes from God. Isaiah 33.22 says that. that. The law comes from God. You know that the law is therefore righteous. I mean, if it comes from God, it's got to be righteous, right? And we see that repeated in Romans 7 verse 12, that yeah, the law is righteous. You know that this law is binding on you. We find that out in Romans 3.19 and 20, right? All have sinned. You know that this law is binding on you. Okay, so you know also, though, that it condemns you at every turn. You'll remember maybe when we first started Galatians and I was up here and I was pointing at everybody because what does the law do? It condemns us at every turn. It points out all the ways in which we fail. So you know that the law comes from God. You know that the law is righteous. You know that the law is binding on you, and yet you know that it condemns you at every turn. What a prison to be in. Am I right? You can't escape it either. No matter where you go, even if you were ignorant of the law, Paul says uh, in Romans 2 that some of those people who didn't even have the law still did what the law required based on just their nature and their conscience, convicting them. So we know that even if you don't have the law, you still are convicted by the bad things that you do. You know that you are wrong. It's, a, it's pointed out over and over again. You can't escape it. These walls, 
And the bars of this prison are so thick and so strong that even if you were given several hundred lifetimes, you couldn't dig your way out of it. You know, smuggle a spoon next time they give you some, some food and try and dig your way out between the mortar of the stones. No, it would take you several hundred lifetimes to get out of this. And guess what? We've been given several hundred lifetimes as humanity in this redemptive purpose through history, and we can't find a way out. There is no escape. It's hopeless. Until what? Until faith comes. Until faith is revealed. That's revealed in Christ. So that's the first metaphor is prison. It's a prison that is hopeless. You can't get out of it without faith in Christ. Then picking up in verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So in these three verses, and actually in 27 as well, we see the second metaphor, and that's the tutor. Um, this, ver- this word, is this Greek word, paidagogos, is actually translated in several different ways. ESV translates it as guardian. The uh, Revised Standard as custodian. The KJV is schoolmaster. And I think actually the one that I like the best is the new Revised Standard version. It's the, um, the disciplinarian. And that's what this is. We get a fuller view of what a paedagogos was. Um, He was a guardian, but also a disciplinarian. In one of the commentaries I was checking out, because really there's uniformity in the commentaries. You go to the commentaries, they all end up talking about this because the word itself was used to describe a particular type of slave during Greek and Roman times um, known as a pedagogue. And so one of the commentaries which I read said, A pedagogue was a slave employed by Greek and Roman families to have general charge of a boy in the years from about 6 to 16, watching over his outward behavior and attending him. And when you combine that with other images of the pedagogue, he would often be carrying a cane or a whip or something like that. And it was a lot of corporal punishment to get that child to go where he wanted to go, to do what um, what he needed to do, and to say the things he needed to say. So, in other words, this was the child, the uh, paeda, the child was under the pedagogue. He was under a slave. That's what the pedagogue was. This child, even though he was a member of the family, was under a slave. He was under a slave, even though he was a part of the family. This slave had general charge of him. Though mostly used in regard to educational growth, there was more to it than that. Like I said, the slave would drive him where he didn't want to go. The slave would make him answer questions in the educational setting that he didn't want to answer or learn things that he didn't want to learn, to do things that he didn't want to do. He was always dogged by this pedagogue behind him carrying a whip or a cane And probably having a surly attitude about it, because who wants to follow around a six-year-old all day? And, guess what? The pedagogue had a clean conscience. He had been told by his master to do this thing, to follow the child wherever the child went, and to make sure that the child did and said what was right. 
And so this slave under which the child is placed for a little while has the ability for, to do corporal punishment, probably has a surly attitude all the time, and has a clean conscience. Now we start getting a, a fuller view of this pedagogue, right? And the paeta underneath him. This, uh, this boy from about 6 to 16. So think about that too. It's like 10 or 11 years of having this guy always around bugging you about stuff. Even as a little child, I, I mean, unless the child had just a really exceptional nature, I doubt they're going to be friends. You know, 10 or 11 years of being dogged by this guy who wants to beat you for not answering questions properly or not paying attention during classes or not going where you want to go, trying to slip away and play with the other boys. 10 or 11 years of it. Can you imagine the freedom and the joy then of the day when you came of age? Can you imagine that? That'd be amazing. In fact, let's flash forward for a second into Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And I don't want to take this from Clark, who I think uh, teaches next week. But I do want to point out, because this is a, a continuation of the thought, he says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. That's exactly what I was talking about, right? He doesn't differ from a slave. He's under a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And that's something I think we really have to, to throw out there and emphasize. Until the date set by the father. What does that mean to us for our passage? It means that the date is not determined by the pedagogue or the child. Probably both of them would like to cancel the whole thing early on, right? But no, it's set by the Father. As we see in verse 26, God is our Father and we are His sons. How? Also verse 26, through faith. Through faith we become sons. In our passage, the Father chooses when the time for faith has come. That's verse 25. And then we see that also mirrored in Galatians 4, verse 2. And what is this faith in? Once again, Christ Jesus. You see how Paul is kind of repeating himself, but you know what? That's good because he needs to repeat himself. He needs to drive this point home. And so we see in this second metaphor, man, the joy of coming of age of coming of maturity. How does this maturity come? By faith. In whom? In Christ. And that's where we get to verse 27. Verse 27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And this is kind of the closure of the metaphor because um, think about this. Think about the, this clothing of ourselves with Christ. When the, the paida, uh, paideia, I've been saying it wrong, paida, isn't that like actually a, a, an Italian, uh, Italian dessert or something? Yeah, paida, wrong, paideia, paideia. That's the Greek and that's the child, okay? So when this paideia reached the age which was set by the father, not by the pedagogue, not by the paideia, when he reached that age, he would take off the, the bulla, this necklace that was given to him when he was a baby, which signified that he belonged to the family. And he would also take off 
the toga that he had worn since childhood, which had a crimson border all around it and which signified that he was still a child. And instead, what he would do is put on a new, pure white toga, signifying his coming of age, this maturity. Okay, so this pure white toga. And then, in triumph almost, he would be walked to the center of the city where his name would be placed on the rolls, the civil rolls, as a newly minted man and citizen of the city of an empire. Can you imagine how proud that young, young man would be? To take off the symbols of childhood and to put on the symbols of maturity. And that's, that's actually what we're getting here in, in chapter 3, verse 27. He references baptism as a way of clothing ourselves with Christ. He closes out then this period of being a paideia under a pedagogue. He closes it out by saying you were baptized. You're putting on the pure white garment of manhood. You are growing into maturity. That's what he's pointing out. And so now that Christ has come, now that faith has come at the right time, the the time that God chose as our Father, now we see the maturity take place. Isn't that awesome? Now, I think we need to notice something very important here. Now, I grew up in a Christian denomination which actually taught baptismal regeneration, and this was one of their favorite verses. Um, Their other proof texts were, you know, things like Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Mark 16, 16, Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, Romans 6.1-11, Colossians 2.12, and 1 Peter 3.21. But this was one of the ones that they always went to. And what's ironic about it is that their point with this passage, or with this verse, taken out of context, is exactly the opposite of what Paul's is. Because we see actually how Paul is trying to make his argument. So they would say something along the lines of, see... You clothe yourselves with Christ when you are baptized. And you can't go to heaven if you're outside of Christ. So be baptized. Okay, yeah, I got that. Yeah, certainly. And that's true in that we clothe ourselves with Christ in being baptized. That's what Paul is saying here. But this argument is completely backwards in that Paul, in using the metaphor of the pedagogue and the child, is showing that the power rests with God. Right? The power rests with God and his appointed disciplinarian for a time, and that that timing rests on God's decision, and it's all carried out by God's Son's work to make us fellow heirs with Christ, as he puts it in Romans 8.17. Furthermore, Paul is stating that the action of being baptized with Christ is a ceremony which is done to a person, not by a person, the old, childish, under the discipline of the law student is done away with, and the new, mature, free man is made heir of the Father. By what? By faith in Christ Jesus, verse 26. This is important for a number of reasons, okay? And the reason I harp on this is for several reasons. Here are a few, okay? First of all, because this is exactly what I was talking about way back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, when I said that any time you make the gospel into the, uh, the gospel of Jesus plus something else, then you automatically make Christ inferior to the plus something else. Anytime you add something to him, you subordinate him to it. 
And that's not really a gospel at all, is it? Galatians 1.7. That's Paul's whole point there at the beginning. A second reason is because the idea of an element of earth holding within itself a power to save is to confine God to the things that he's created. So water, though it's necessary for life and though it quenches our thirst and it cleanses us, up, it cleanses us of the filth of living, though it's beautiful to watch and to listen to, though it's powerful and vibrant and tide and current, water is still nothing without the God who made it and keeps it all flowing right? And then third, because, and this is, this is, I think, the most important one, because the power is not in the metaphor. The power is in the metaphor, or what the metaphor signifies. In fact, I'm going to even, like, pound on the lectern. I wish it was louder there. The power is not in the metaphor. The power is in what the metaphor signifies, right? Amen? Amen. Think about Noah's Ark. In Noah's Ark, yes, uh, eight people were saved from the wrath of God and the flood waters, right? But it's nothing compared to our true Ark, First Peter three twenty one, uh, right? Uh, think of the ladder of which Jacob dreamt. Yes, angels ascended and descended on this ladder and connected heaven and earth. But guess what? It's nothing compared to the true ladder, which is Jesus Christ, on whom we will ascend to, to heaven. And that's John 1.51. Think about the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Sure, thousands of people were saved by gazing upon it, but it's nothing like the true one who was lifted up on Calvary. John 3.14. Or, if that's not enough for you, take just the metaphors that we see in Hebrews. And I only have a few of them here. Um, Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ gives greater rest than the promised land. Christ is a better high priest. Christ is a better sanctuary. Christ is a better sacrifice. Therefore, we know that it is not in baptism or the law that our hope of salvation lies, but in the one in whom we gladly descend with into the waters. The one in whom we die so that our old self is dead and buried and a new self actually rises for Christ. As Paul said in Galatians two nineteen and 20, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Right? And so now we get to the last two verses here, and I'll try and get through them pretty quickly since and leave some time for discussion. Um, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so the first thing which I need to say about this is that this verse, these verses do not do away with distinctions um, entirely, okay? Because some of these distinctions were created by God. For example, these verses do not say that there is no such thing as a Jew or a Greek. There's no such thing as a slave or a free man. There's no such thing as a male or a female. Nor does it say that there's some weird fluidity of half Jew, half Greek, or part male, part female. No. In spite of what our, our culture tells us, no. God created them male and female, 
right? In his image, he created them, male and female. And we know, too, that God has, um, from before creation, once again, Ephesians 1.4, he laid out the time and the, uh, the um, boundaries of nations, of peoples, and of you in your life, right? So that he knew that you would be born an American, that you'd go to college in Ohio, that you would, uh, I don't know, become whatever you end up becoming as a job or something like that, that you would be described in certain ways, right? He chose it. But instead, these verses are actually addressing the breakdown of the earthly separations and barriers. So what actually happens here is is, uh, Paul is stressing that within Christ, those, those discriminators that we place, the ways that we twist all of these distinctions by our sin and by the sin of the world around us, that is done away with. Instead, what it is is Christ actually doesn't do away with distinctions. He redeems them. And so all of a sudden we see that there are like Jews and the difference between Jews and Greeks, there are no racial discriminators. There are no ethnic discriminators or um, slave and free. There are no social discriminators in Christ or male and female. There are no sexual or um, gender discriminators within Christ. Instead, all of us have clothed ourselves with Christ. And so it is Christ who lives in us. This is all summarized too through our final verse that all who belong to Christ then are heirs according to the promise and Abraham's descendants. So in other words, and in fact we'll get into this in a second, we see that there is a, uh, a, a new categorization in which the heirs of God, the Father, those who are the paideia who became mature and put on Christ, they end up being put into this category where they are actually heirs of the promise that was given to Abraham prior to the Mosaic Law, right? Prior to even circumcision. So it ties back, too, to what we see earlier in the chapter. If you look in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says there, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So this is a repetition. Look over in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So there's one seed. And the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, right? Um, Look over in chapter 4, verse 28 for a moment, because he says this again. Galatians 4, 28. And you, brothers like Isaac, are children of the promise. Like Isaac. So we're not like Ishmael. You get that? So it's not the blood. It's not by blood, but by rather by promise, right? By choice of God. So this is illustrating the sovereign will of God in who comes to Christ. And we see once again that sovereign will being shown throughout all of redemptive history. But, Paul doesn't just leave it here in Galatians. If you go back to Romans, go to Romans 4 real quick. Go to Romans 4. And I'm just going to read these verses because these are awesome. Romans 4 verse 12. He says, And the Father, or 
Abraham is the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith, of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul here is making the argument that we are sons of, of Abraham, whether we are circumcised or not. But what he's pointing out is that we are all sons of, of um, Abraham through faith. Same point that he's making against the law. And in fact, he says over in uh, 4.16, Romans 4.16, For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, there's a point here where it had to be a faith in order for grace to reign. Do you see that? And that is one of the key reasons why we need to be heirs of Abraham, heirs of the promise of him, because it's in faith that we are given access to grace. Man, it's amazing how much this goes together, right? Flip over real quick to Romans 9. Romans 9, because he picks this whole thing up again in verse 6. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Not Ishmael, right? That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And he, he drives that point home when he talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So you get a fuller understanding then that as he says back in our, our passage in Galatians, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise of Abraham for salvation, a faith, which is counted as righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? So therefore, we are partakers in the promise of God to Abraham, which was brought then by Christ, fulfilled by Christ, and then sealed by the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian work, even though it's not talked about here in Galatians. It is a Trinitarian work on our behalf, which undoes all of the worldly elements of boastfulness and pride. Those elements being, you know, glorying in being a Jew or a Greek, glorying in being a slave or a free man, glorying in being a male or a female, all of these things that we twist in our own culture and in our own society to make it seem like we're awesome. No, there's nothing that does that. You might try to boast in the law. You might try to boast in baptism. Boast in your Jewishness, Greekness, slaveness, freeness, maleness, femaleness. It doesn't matter because all of it is done away with or all of it is redeemed in Christ Jesus. Let's turn real quick. I just want to close with this one verse because I love this when we're talking about boasting. And that seems to be what, what was animating the whole, uh, the whole discussion here that Paul is making with Galatians. Go to Jeremiah chapter 9. Um, because what he says... What Paul is talking about there, and the reason why he ends up talking about the unity based on breaking down these distinctions or redeeming them in 28 and 29 is because the Judaizers were boasting in the law. 
They were boasting in their keeping of the law. They were boasting in their circumcision. They were boasting in who they were. But what does is, what is God say through Jeremiah a few hundred years before Christ came, before faith came, to set us free from the prison, free from the pedagogue? He says in verse 23, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The law brought only condemnation. The law brings only um, a prison. The law carries around a cane and dogs your steps beating you until you do what you're supposed to do. Go where you don't want to go. Do the things that you don't want to do. Until faith comes. Until Christ comes and redeems it all. Isn't that awesome? What a wonderful thing. And we see it all in these wonderful metaphors that are throughout Scripture and that we found here and that God has always had a plan. Can't you rest easy in knowing that God has a plan and he's not going to deviate from it? What a wonderful thing. Let's pray, and then we'll go to our discussion groups. Father in heaven, we come before you now, and we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the hope that we find in it. We thank you for the freedom that comes by faith in Christ Jesus, that we are truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that, Lord, you hold the keys to not only the timing in, in uh, all of redemptive history, but also the timing in our lives, and that you have set the boundaries of our lives. Help us to rest easy in that. Help us to get rid of the anxiety that so often reigns, and instead, Lord, to be thankful for the freedom that we get, the maturity that you have brought by your Spirit and by your Word, by faith in Christ. And that we now are mature and that we can now seek out you in freedom out of love and desire rather than out of um, and out of discipline and out of guardianship and out of uh, being forced to. But instead, Lord, that you would give us a desire more and more each and every day. Please bless our time together as we discuss these, this passage. We praise you for who you are, and we thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.